Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we're in our third part of Bonnie and Clyde. On the morning of May 23rd, 1934, the posse had convinced Frank Methvin, the father of Henry Methvin, to position his truck on the shoulder of the highway, assuming that Clyde would stop to speak to him on his way to meet up with Henry or Methvin. At approximately 9.15, a vehicle came speeding along the highway, slowing down as he came along the posse's position. Because what they did is they had Frank park his truck there and pretend to change a tire. And now this man is doing it because he thinks his son is going to be granted clemency for killing those two motorcycle mm-hmm. officers. So he's playing a part in catching Bonnie and Clyde. There's two different stories, and I don't know which one's true. One is saying he wasn't like a willing accomplice that the police parked his truck on the side of the road and tied him to a tree, <laughs> making that would they know that would Clyde would stop and be like, "What the hell?" Which to me, I don't think Clyde would stop. I think he'd be like, "He'll be fine," and keep going because I think he would know it was a trap. The other story is that the dad volunteered to pretend like he was changing a tire, and then that would force Clyde, which makes more sense to me. Yeah. So who knows what story is true? But at nine fifteen, a vehicle came speeding along the highway, slowing down as he came along the posse's position, who were hidden out of view, but within view of the truck that was pulled, that was on the side of the road. Hammer claims that he called out, telling them to pull over. Witnesses, which I don't know what other witnesses other than the posse, claim that nothing was said and that the posse immediately began shooting. They um, shot over 120 shots into the moving vehicle, emptying their weapons. One of those shots killed Clyde instantly, causing Bonnie to scream. The vehicle, under no control, because Clyde is now dead, rolled into an embankment. Both Bonnie and Clyde, who had survived numerous bullet wounds that we've endlessly talked about over the last couple of years, over the last couple of years, it was determined later that on this day, any one of those 120 shots was deadly, could have killed them. According to the official report from Parish Coroner J.L. Wade, Barrow's body displayed 17 entrance wounds and Parker's had 26. I don't know. I guess I'm picturing it wrong. Like I'm picturing that they're on the driver's side because they would want to take out the driver. But it seems like they were on the passenger side because she had far more bullet wounds. And they fired indiscriminately. They just fired at the vehicle. And they said, um, one of the accounts said that like they couldn't do anything after they stopped shooting because they couldn't hear because of the shots. Many of the shots were, there were multiple gun headshot wounds, both of them. And um, one of them had severed bar, um, Clyde's spinal column. Undertaker C.F. Bailey, then these names, his nickname was Boots, encountered challenges embalming the bodies due to the multitude of bullet holes. That's how many times they were shot. Bonnie and Clyde had been repaired. They were armed with over a dozen guns after when the car finally rolled to a stop and the posse recovered from the sound of all of these shots. They 
got to the car and Bunny and Clyde had dozens of guns. I think there was one or two on Bunny's lap. There was one leaning against her leg. And they had thousands of rounds of ammunition in the Ford, including 120-round bar magazines, the automatic rifle. The officers, temporarily deafened by the encounter, examined the vehicle and uncovered the arsenal comprising of stolen rifles, shot off shot, sawed off semi-automatic shotguns, assorted handguns, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. Additionally, 15 sets of license plates from various states were found. Hammer remarked, I hate to bust a cap on a woman, especially when she's sitting down. However, if it wouldn't have been her, it would have been us. Which is true. If Clyde had any indication that they were there, he, well, he wouldn't have been there. And secondly, they would have gone down in a place of gunfire. Right. Regardless, whether it was theirs or someone else's. News of the deaths quickly spread when Hammer, Jordan, Oakley, and Hinton drove into town to make phone calls. A crowd gathered at the scene. Two of the posse that were left behind attempted to guard the bodies. However, they struggled to keep control. One woman even took bloody locks of Parker's hair in pieces of her dress to sell as souvenirs. Like, it was so... Okay, first of all, that would never happen today. They would immediately stop people from getting anywhere near it. I don't know that people would do that. No, they probably would. So imagine this though. The car is like in a ditch. The half the posse went into town to make phone calls, obviously to whoever hired hammer. And then on top of it, like on like they all probably had agreements with different news outlets to let them know what happened. And when they come back, there's a throng of people reaching into the car like, there's no investigation at this point. Right. They're reaching to the car. They're cutting off pieces of her hair, bloody hair. By the way, she was shot in the head multiple times. Um, pieces of her dress, things from the car. Um, they weren't technically stealing items because, again, that would be stealing, but they're taking pieces of stuff. When Hinton returned, he actually caught a man trying to cut off Barrow's finger, um, trigger finger. My God. Who wants that anyways? What the hell are you doing? Like, you're going to sell that later? Oh, here's Clyde Barrow's trigger finger? Yeah, like, right? Like, I don't get it. But it did trigger me to, um, not to use that word again, but um, it triggered me to look at memorabilia and his watch, which I think was kind of girly looking, maybe it was the style for the time, sold for $186,000, again, just in 2019. That was minutes ago. Yeah. And then they also had... Her poem book had, in an auction, had, I mean, bidding war, basically, had reached $25,000, and um, whoever had put up her poetry book for sale, it, it pulled it out, so it never actually sold, and there's no, inf- I don't have any information on who was selling it, but they also sold, I want to say, a gun, a shot off gun, a shotgun sold for 68000 which was a gun that they had um, found during the Joplin shootout in Missouri. And then something else sold. The, his Bolivia watch sold for 186000 And then the gun sold for almost 70000 The A draft of the police wanted poster sold for um, just under $5,000. But you know what's super weird when I was looking for the memorabilia? Timu, of all places, sells their wanted poster. Like you can hang it on your wall. I mean, it's not authentic no but i know but the team <laughs> like, that's weird that's yeah. so bizarre so most onlookers had started collecting souvenirs such as shell casings shards of glass from the shattered car windows 
buddy fragments of closings, clothing from both of them. When another man had tried to cut off Clyde's ear, again, body parts, Hinton sought Hammer's assistant in, man in managing this circus-like atmosphere. And people didn't clearly fuck with Hammer. I don't know what was about this man, but he he's one who successfully dispersed people. And this always gets me too. The posse towed the Ford with their bodies inside of it. Like it was just put on a tow truck with the bodies inside of it. Can you imagine that happening today? No, but I mean, it's like there'd efficient. be a three. It's more, much more efficient. <laughs> there would be a three day investigation. The roads would be closed. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's so crazy. And they towed it to the Conger. They towed the car to the Conger furniture store and funeral parlor. So you shopped for your couch and your casket in the same place back right. in those days, which. By the way, for those of you wondering why a furniture store, in those days, the first undertakers were woodworkers that made cabinets. It all makes sense. You're nodding at me because it makes sense. They were making cabinets in furniture, so it, their side gig was probably making coffins. Right. Um, they had the skills. In fact, for many of the early undertakers, building caskets was just an extension of their business, and undertaking was their secondary business. So they didn't just build the coffins. They did the undertaking, too. Preliminary embalming was conducted in a small preparation room in the back of the furniture store. The population of Northwest Louisiana town reportedly surged from 2,000 to 12,000 within a few hours. They had 10,000 people jump into their little town. Crowds were arriving by train, horseback, buggy, and plane. The price of beer rose from 15 cents to 25 cents a bottle, and they didn't have enough food. Food was selling out everywhere. Henry Barrow, Clyde's dad, is the one who identified his son's body. He sat weeping in a rocking chair in the furniture section. There's actual photographs of it. The, there isn't a lot written about Clyde's dad. There's a lot written about the mom. And I think because the mom went to great lengths to care for her sons, even when they were committing crimes and killing people, even with Buck when Buck was shot in that field, she drove many, many miles to be by his bedside and was there when he passed. And with Clyde, she risked her life many, many times to meet them and give them food or money or whatever it was. So Kumi Barrow, there's a lot written about her. There isn't as much written about the dad. And for whatever reason, that one sentence that he was the one who identified his son's body and sat weeping in the rocking chair, for some reason, like I feel like he just had no control. Do you know what I mean? Like his, he doesn't have a criminal record. The crimes didn't come from him. Right. But how much responsibility did he maybe feel because he didn't provide for his family mm -hmm. either? Although he tried. He built a house. He built a filling station, all that stuff. H.D. Darby the, was an undertaker from the funeral parlor and Sophie Stone, a home demonstration agent, were the two that had been kidnapped. And they both came to Arcadia to identify the bodies. They were the ones, the hostages ones, that they joked about the embalming with. Darby ended up assisting in the embalming process of Bonnie and Clyde. Family members were notified of their death, and the Barrow families were the ones who made the arrangements for both bodies to be brought back to Dallas by ambulance. Clyde's body was accompanied by his dad and his brother. He had a younger brother. His body was sent to Sparkman Holtz Brand Funeral Home, and Bonnie's body was sent to McCammy Campbell, arriving on May 24th, 1934. So literally within the next day, like, and that would just never happen. There would be all kinds of things going on. After preparation, their bodies were made pu for 
made available for public viewing. They both had, they both had so many gunshots. Yeah, I can't even imagine. The the thing is, people wrote that they looked good. Like mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it, but um, apparently, ten thousand people viewed Clyde's body, and twenty thousand people viewed Bonnie's. And I'm curious why people are more interested in her. Maybe because they looked at him as the murderer and her as, you know, the one who loved her man. I don't know. It's weird. I found a letter written by one of the employees of McCammy Campbell who um, prepared Bonnie's body. And it's kind of gross, but I really want to read it for you. And um, I'm reading it for you, firstly, because it tells of the damage that was done to her. But it talks about what the newspapers reported as opposed to what really happened. I'm warning it's graphic. So if you are into this stuff, you're going to want to hit forward. And I don't know if I'm just morbid that I want to read it out loud, but it kind of just gives an idea of like we know now that the that the newspapers and stuff don't tell the truth. Like they get details wrong and they still put it out. This is kind of written the same way. Like it explains what the newspapers wrote and what they didn't. And I mean, really, what went into preparing them after the ambush they went through. It's written, what's really weird. There's an actual copy of the letter online. Like it's, you can read the actual writing. They, someone translated it so you could actually read it. And it's on Adolphus Hotel stationery. And across the top of it, it says on both sides, tear this up. Like once you read, tear this up. They didn't want this letter to survive. So who was the letter going to? I, I forget who they sent it to. There, it's not anybody with a family or anything. And it, it just says a funeral home employee it doesn't say who it was written by which is weird but he had a part in the embalming and i think what it is is you're just sending it to a family member it says here's a first-hand account of bonnie and clyde as we had bonnie she was about the size of rose grace clearly someone to them weighing a hundred pounds a thousand pounds of dynamite though she was very pretty of course her skin was some somewhat tan her nails were beautiful likewise her toenails her toes look like fingers. The cuticles were pushed back. The nails filed. The nails filed to a point, which I didn't know that. You know how people have the pointy nails now? That was a thing back in 1930. Just repeating itself. And a deep coral shade of polish was on them. The most beautiful toes I'd ever saw. Just perfect. Her permanent, just a month old, we had it waved. Her face, right size, ugh, right side was blown off. We fixed this and you could hardly tell. Just one, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. Just one bullet went through her brain, however, and a number grazed her head as there were three big holes in her scalp, but not through her skull. Her left eye was terribly back black. However, I used eyeshadow on the other eye to match so that they were covered up. Now her body was just mutilated and torn to pieces from the shots. Her right hand was nearly blown off, and he wrote, known as her trigger finger. I wonder why he... People back then, I don't think they still know whether she shot anyone. Her body, besides being full of bullet holes, was full of buckshot. Pellets were all over her body. We received the body 10 minutes to 9. Joe and I worked on her until 3 that afternoon. At that time, we'd say that there were about 25,000 people lined up outside. It took two hours to pick the dirt, rocks, etc. from her hair, then to wash it and have it waved. A tattoo on her right leg has two hearts, one red, red Ray, the other Bonnie. Ray, as you know, was her husband, Ray Thornton, now in pen. All fluid the undertaker in Arcadia, Louisiana, used leaked out as she was torn up 
So she was a mass of blood caked and dried several hours in bathing her. Had to scrape some of it off and use gold dust to remove most of it. Her skin slipped that might account for it. Began to, oh, I'm sorry. This is really gross. I'm preparing. Began to smell the next morning, turning dark and smelling worse. The last day was so rotten, so to speak, her, the odor was awful. Her mother, though, sat in the room alone with her, with her head over the casket. How she could do it, Lord knows. The other children couldn't. Mother fainted 2.30 that night, and I asked if she wouldn't like to go home, and she went. By then, the entire place smelt. We had to keep her so her sister, Billy, that was in jail in Fort Worth, could get out and come to the funeral. She was buried in an all-steel metal casket. Paper said $1,000, but that's wrong. It was maybe only $600 or less. Pipe, paper said 1000 in vault. That was wrong, too. She was buried in an ice blue negligee. Is that spelled right, they wrote. She was dressed in expensive clothes when killed. About 40,000 people came to view her. Papers said $1,500 in damages done to the funeral home. Wrong, the extent of $2.50. They did not tear up windows as stated in the papers. The women next door, though, did turn the hose on them to keep her flowers from being walked on. We had 38 officers stationed in three shifts all over the house in front and backyard to keep the crowd under control and all of us as well. Four operators on the phone. They rang every two minutes for two days and nights. More people came to see Bonnie than Clyde. Our new porch fam furniture was damaged, and we had a rubber mat about a half-inch thickness all over the funeral home. Officers stationed to keep people on it so as not to wear the rug out. I'm a big movie star. My picture was shown in movies. The paper stretched their stories. She was not to become a mother as stated. She was just diseased slightly, though, as stated. So the newspapers had that she was pregnant and that she had diseases throughout her body. He's saying that she didn't. She's slightly, though, but that she was not pregnant. Now you have it firsthand as I worked on her. Joe and my work praised very high in every other line in the papers, and if I do say so, it was good, and she looked swell. No trace of disfiguring showing. The crowd did not steal anything to take home. All paper talk. Example, crowd lined up at Fair Park. Now judge how it looked. They brought their lunch. The papers are such fools is how he ended the letter. I know it's gross, but I can't help it because it's like, to me, that's the memorabilia is people who were there that day. Mm -hmm. Although, again, why do people want it, right? Bonnie's mother declined a double funeral and the option of burying them together, which most believe was their choice, was what they wanted. They wanted to be buried together, and her mom said absolutely not. Both Clyde's brother, Elsie, and Bonnie's sister, Billy, who were in jail at the time, were released to attend the funerals. Clyde's funeral was held. They didn't even have a joint funeral. They had two separate funerals. Both funerals were private, meaning like the public wasn't invited. The public was invited to view their open caskets, but they were not invited to the funeral. The funeral was a private event. Um, 25, Clyde was only 25, was held on Friday, and 24-year-old Bonnie's was on Saturday. The only member of the Parker family to attend Clyde's funeral was Bonnie's mom, Emma, but the entire Borough family came to Bonnie's, which I don't understand. I mean, Emma, here's the thing, though. Bonnie didn't have a lot of family. She had a brother or sister and... Her mom. Mm -hmm. 
and um, Clyde had multiple siblings. I mean, Beck had been the only one that had passed away and his mom and dad. So his whole family went to Bonnie's funeral. Only, only her mom went to Clyde's. Clyde is buried beside his brother, Beck. The pallbearers for Bonnie included Clyde's brother, Elsie Barrow. It was remarked that flyers came all over the country. And this is where I think the papers are bullshit. They um, reported that one of the arrangements came from Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger, which were major gangsters of the era. They said that the largest spray of flowers was paid for by newspaper boys in recognition of all the papers that were sold on account of Bonnie and Clyde. Kind of don't believe it. Clyde's marker, um, by his choice, says gone but not forgotten. And, you know, he's right. What happened to the other gang members, right? So they're gone. Blanche Barrow, often called the reluctant gang member, in her book called My Life with Bonnie and Clyde, she said we laughed about a lot of things we should have taken more seriously. But no matter how serious or dangerous the situation was, we always found something to laugh about later on. It always seemed better to laugh than to cry. We had to laugh to keep from crying. She was convinced by her husband to join the gang, back telling her that he thought he could convince Clyde to go straight. Blanche, who later testified that she accompanied the gang solely to be with her husband, apparently gave the authorities no useful information. She never routed anyone out. It was only in 1935 that she and other family members of Bonnie and Clyde were har tried for harboring. And um, they all, like, I think 19 members were sent to be tried for helping Bonnie and Clyde throughout the four years. She had been sent to Platt County, Missouri, where she was charged with attempting to murder Sheriff Holt Coffee during the Platt shootout. Despite the fact that she was wounded by the posse, Blanche found Coffee remarkably sympathetic, and she actually stayed close to him and his wife after her release of prison. Police continued to always monitor her, and she died at the age of 77 from lung cancer on Christmas Eve in 1988. She stayed very close to, and I think sometimes lived, with Bonnie's sister. Which is weird because Blanche does not have a very, again, a very high opinion of Bonnie, but she stayed close to Bonnie's family and she was married to Clyde Barrow. So like the families were intertwined for the rest of their lives in some way, shape or form. W.D. Jones, the youngest member of the gang, claimed to be relieved that Bonnie and Clyde had been killed and he claimed innocent in a lot of the murders. Some believe at the urging of Clyde saying Clyde told him if he ever got caught to put the blame on him. He ended up taking a bargain and only admitting to the killing of a sheriff in Dallas. He told Playboy magazine in 1968, which is weird. They all did an interview. The surviving people did an interview with Playboy in 1968. Remember the movie came out in 1967. So people were interested in Body and Clyde again. Yeah. So Playboy is the one who probably paid enough to get these people to be interviewed. He said his quote was Clyde had done it, but he was, I was glad to take the rap for killing that sheriff. He did it to avoid extradition to Arkansas. During his trial, all state witnesses recommended against a death penalty, and he was convicted of murder without malice. The DA recommended 99 years, but the jury handed down a sentence of only 15. In February of 1935, Jones joined the 19 members of Barrow and the Parker families who were tried in mass, in mass for harboring Bonnie and Clyde. He received the maximum of two years for that, and he ran concurrently with his other sentence. He ended up being paroled after six years in Huntsville Prison. He tried to join the Army in World War II, but was turned down because x-rays showed buckshot and bullet in his chest. He lived the rest of his life in Houston. Living next door to his mom, he ended up being addicted to pain pills. Obviously, he was filled with bullets mm -hmm. all over his body. In 1967, when the movie came out, 
Reporters took him to see the movie. He said to some boys sitting near them in the theater that the movie made it seem like sort of glamorous, but take it from an old man who was there. It was hell. He spent some of his time speaking out about a life of crime and later filed a petition against Warner Brothers, saying he was maligned in the movie for making it appear that he betrayed Bonnie and Clyde. He's quoted as saying, I never lived it down. I've tried, but I guess I never will. On August 20th, 1974, he went with an acquaintance to a friend's home, hoping to find a place for her to sleep for the night. The friend went and let her in, and a fight broke out, and at 11.55 a.m., the friend shot Jones three times, killing him. So he didn't do so well with the rest of his life. But he, in the movie, I think they combi- combined, I can't remember, I didn't see, I've never seen the movie, but I think they combined J.D. Um, Jones with another person. It's like they made it one character in that movie. And he, it, apparently in the movie, they made it look like he routed out Bonnie and Clyde, but he only followed Clyde's, Clyde's direction on um, not taking the rap for uh, one of the killings. So he didn't like that, even though, you know, he knew that Bonnie and Clyde did the things that they did. He didn't like having the reputation of being the one who ratted them out because mm-hmm. technically he doesn't feel he did. Raymond Hamilton, another one of the gang members, he had met Clyde growing up in the same neighborhood and later joined the gang. He had been involved in the killing of the deputy at the dance. This is one of the first guys. It was his first murder of law enforcement, of a law enforcement um, officer by the gang. Ray was part of the group that got out during the prison break at the farm. He didn't always get along with other gang members, and I touched on this, mostly because of his girlfriend. She had suggested that the reason why they fought was because she had told Bonnie to put something in Clyde's drink to knock him out, and they would take all his money and leave. Like, she tried to convince Bonnie to leave Clyde, and Bonnie, of course, told Clyde. So then Clyde and Raymond got in a big old fight. The group and and was captured and put in prison in April, just shy of the month of just shy of when the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde happened, he escaped, went on a crime spree with another gang member, Ralph Foltz, the guy from the very beginning that got out of prison with Clyde. He was recaptured April fifth, nineteen thirty five, and was executed by electric chair on May tenth, in nineteen thirty five in Huntsville. He never publicly admitted to killing anyone, but he told his brother that Claudia and I were both shooting. It could have been either of us. He died eleven days before his twenty first birthday. Ralph Fultz, the original criminal that that joined the gang, um, his criminal career started at a young age, far before he was a member of the um, gang. Ralph met Clyde en route to East Ham Prison. The two were the ones that planned the raid on East Ham when they got out, although it's believed he knew of the prison break when it actually did happen, but he didn't play a part in it. During his time in prison, he became friends with many outlaws of the public enemy era. Upon his release, he joined up with the gang, and from 1932 until their death in 34, Ralph was in and out of the gang. He was arrested after a failed robbery of a hardware store along with Bonnie. Bonnie had been released, but Ralph was sentenced to 10 years and served three. Barrow and Parker had already been killed, so he reunited with Ray Hamilton, the one that got executed, and the pair stole eight Thompson machine guns, submachine guns, from a national armory in a car in Oklahoma. Then in March of 35, they robbed a grocery store. While on the run, he and Hamilton made a stop at the site where Bonnie and Clyde were ambushed. They stopped. There's an, a memorial there. And they stopped. They then robbed a bank in Mississippi, and the two separated. Ralph heard of Hamilton's arrest and headed to Texas to help him break out of, a, out of prison in a stolen car. He then, with another friend, stole money from an oil refinery. 
He was finally caught in April and returned to Huntsville Prison, where he was put in solitary confinement, confinement for planning a prison break. Although he was sentenced to 50 years for his crime spree, he was pardoned in 1944. He went straight and ran a laundry facility at a Baptist children's home. He became religious and often spoke about the evils of crime, and he ended up living a very clean life. In 1960, Fultz helped create a local television program called Confession. On this program, in a panel format, Fultz and representatives of the Texas State Bar Board of Pardons and Paroles and of the state prison system discussed the unique needs of former prisoners and the importance of offering them jobs with former inmates, business people, and attorneys. A book called Running with Bonnie and Clyde, The Ten Fast Years of Ralph Fultz, tells the story of his life. Fultz died in Dallas March 16, 1993, at the age of 82. His daughter spoke about the positive influence and the help he gave youth to avoid a life in crime. Now, Henry Methvin, the one whose dad helped capture Bonnie and Clyde, he was only 22, year old, 22 years old and was serving a 10-year sentence at East Ham when Bonnie and Clyde came to break out Ray Hamilton. He and three others took the opportunity to escape with Ray. Clyde offered for all three to join the gang. Methvin was the only one that accepted, and he remained with them until the end five months later. He joined in the stealing of guns and ammunitions in Texas and was present the day that, obviously present, he shot E.B. Wheeler, Wheeler and H.D. Murphy, the motorcycle cops, in cold blood. A side note, Barrow has always been inconsistent about the shooting of the officers. He wrote a relative that Melvin had misunderstood the orders to take them and that uh, he had only intended to take them hostage and Methvin had shot them both. He remained on the run with them for the next few months and took part in a bank robbery in Kansas with another man, Joe Palmer. Left behind at a diner because Clyde saw police, he met back up with the gang at his parents' house. Methvin had told his father that if the group were ever separated, they would meet on the stretch of highway. And then again, that's he had part. Henry Methvin avoided prosecution for the grapevine killing because of the clemency that the police offered, but... That arrangement didn't protect him from avoiding prosecution for the murder of the constable. He was sentenced to death on December 20th, 1935, and it was commuted to life in prison, and he was paroled in 42. He continued to stay in trouble, was arrested again for bank robbery and drunk driving. In 1948, he attempted to cross a railroad track and was killed by a train. His father had died the same way 16 months earlier making people think that maybe they weren't accidents after all, but retribution for their part in the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde. So the dad died by being hit by the train, and then he died by being hit by a train. Seems a little suspicious. So people think it was people who loved and cared for Bonnie and Clyde and kind of ended their life. Mm -hmm. for. So after the ambush on Bonnie and Clyde, the car that they had been in when they were ambushed was stolen in Kansas. Um, the original owner of the car tried to get it back, um, it had been stolen out of her driveway in April. And the sheriff said that for her to get the car back, she had to pay $15,000. Now, mind you, the car cost them $762. And for why? I, there's no explanation why the sheriff wanted $15,000 for this car. So she took him to court. The court ruled in her favor. It's her damn car. You don't have to, you don't get to charge her. So she got in the car. She got the car back. She got in the car and drove it from Louisiana to Kansas, full of bullet holes, all the blood stains, all the crap. You know what I mean? Like they obviously had taken stuff out of the car, but the car was completely shot up and she drove it back 
to Kansas. Um, she rented it to a carnival owner who toured the country with a car. The car was finally sold to Prima Donna Resorts in 1988. Guess for how much money? Apollo. $250,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but for a car in 1988, $250,000 is insane. Um, it's now on display at the Prim Valley Resort in Prim, Nevada. Inside the car is a piece of Clyde's clothing from that day. It's actually a shirt he was wearing. It literally has bullet holes all through it. And um, his sister signed. She signed a letter saying that the shirt is authentic and that um, it's actually part of the display. And, okay, the car has over 120 bullet holes. It still has bloodstains, although people say now that you can't really tell it's bloodstains. It has the shirt he died in. Um, so, it, it, like, if you think things are haunted, like, is the car haunted? The people that work at the hotel and visitors claim that it's very haunted and that you can feel a presence when you're standing close to the car and others have taken photos of um, strange objects in their photos, which I'm going to go see the car. I'm going to Vegas next week. So I, and I have seen the car back in the early nineties. I it didn't, I thought I knew the story of Bonnie and Clyde even back then. And I saw it and I was like, Oh, that's kind of a trip. That's cool. I want to see that. And I, I know I saw it and I looked at it. Um, now it has a much deeper meaning after having done this whole story. So when I go to Vegas, I have to go to Vegas for a whole week for work. And on my way back, I'm going to stop and check out the car just to see. see. Yeah, I just want to see it. I know. I'm pretty sure it's in glass. But it's interesting to say that people say it's haunted. Hammer, the um, Texas Ranger who basically um, orchestrated the ambush on Bonnie and Clyde, was given first choice of things that were in the car. In lieu of getting a cash reward, he took some guns in the fishing tackle box from the car because they lived by fishing. I mean, they, a lot of times they had to get food on their own. They fished. He ended up taking the tackle box. Guess where the tackle box is now? Where? Zach Baggins Haunted Museum in Las Vegas. Like, it's weird to me about that. I mean, technically the car is not in Las Vegas. It's right outside of Las Vegas and Prim. But the taco box is also, they had no, they were not connected. I, I don't know that they'd ever been to Nevada. Right. But it's weird that their death car and one of the items from the car both ended up in the same state. I think that's just kind of bizarre, don't you? Yeah. The legends of Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang live on and will never be known for taking large sums of money. Rather, they will go down in history for their indiscriminate taking of lives. And most say, met the end that they deserved. An excerpt of Bonnie's most famous poem, The Trail End, reads, You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the borrow gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they're heartless and mean. But I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest, upright, and clean. But the law fooled around and kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. They don't think they're too smart or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief, to the law, a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. 
And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.